if we suspect we have a tumor, the first thing we think about and fear is cancer. So when we see a physician to have a tumor biopsied and the result of the biopsy comes back benign rather than malignant, we're relieved. But some benign tumors can threaten our health. In this episode of Lifespan, our guest, Deidre Naughton, describes her experience with recurring benign tumors. Dee lives in the Republic of Ireland, where the Irish have a national health care system, the Health Service Executive, commonly known as the HSE. Dee's story begins in the early 2000s, when she was in her 20s. I remember experiencing um, pain in my breasts every now and then for a few months or so. And one particular day while I was on my way to work, um, I spotted one of those breast check trucks. Um, I don't know if you have them in the US. They're like kind of mobile trucks and they were in the car park at work. And um, I'm embarrassed now thinking about it because I spent a few minutes kind of there in the park, car park, plucking up the courage to go in. And eventually I did. And this lovely lady said to me, I'm really sorry. She said, this is um, this breast check is just for women who are over 50. And I kind of turned around and plodded down the steps, feeling a bit silly for going in in the first place. So the pain kind of came and went. And then I mentioned it to my mom one day and she said, look, go to your GP. A GP or general practitioner is what we would call a primary care physician in the United States. Dee's GP prescribed primrose oil and referred her to a breast consultant. But her young age, remember she's in her 20s, ensured that doctors would continue to dismiss her complaints of breast pain. The consultant at the time, he took one look at me and he said, sure, you're only a young girl, you're fine. He did examine me, but he said, look, you're too young for a mammogram. About a decade later, in 2013, Dee became pregnant with her first child. I remember the, the day I found out um, I was pregnant. It was a Sunday, the 11th. Um, it was about the 11th of August. And uh, we were due to fly out to London, myself, my husband, that morning or that day because he was he had work and I was I was allowed to tag along. So I was very excited about that. Um, and I noticed um, I noticed about two or three days into the trip, I noticed kind of a a yellowy stain on my bra, right? And I was, I wasn't surprised. I was, it was coming from my right nipple. And it was just unusual. It was coming from one. And I looked it up in the pregnancy books that I had excitedly bought in, in the bookstores in London. Do you read about colostrum, the thick yellowish form that human milk takes initially, except that colostrum is not produced until much later in pregnancy and in greater amounts just after giving birth? but she assumed that was the explanation for the fluid leaking from her right breast. You know, I, I went on about my business and about my pregnancy, and I, and as I kind of moved into the second trimester, I noticed, you know, this, this fluid just wasn't going away, but it was kind of coming and going. Um, and I said it to the antenatal, you know, at, the, at appointments, and they, they, they didn't look at the breast because they're so concerned with baby. Um, they just said, look, your breasts go through many stages when you're pregnant. It's normal. They reassured me. And that was fine. Dee noted that the first and third trimesters of pregnancy are normally the most uncomfortable. But during her first pregnancy, it was the second trimester that was the hardest. 
And I remember my colleagues even counting how pale I was at work. Um, you know, I just felt really drained. Now I look back, I think something was growing in my breast. I was growing a baby, but I was also growing something else, um, a tumor in my breast. That's what I think was taking so much energy from me. But I remember it was the winter time of 2013 and I woke in the middle of the night with this burst of pain in my breast. It, it passed as pain does and I went back to sleep and it did never ever happened again to me thank goodness you know but it was like a bursting um something bursting inside me um and I was sore the next day I do remember feeling tender the next day and then we come to Christmas the day after Christmas I woke up and I had blood on my top. I got a fright and I woke up and I went, oh my goodness. And it was from my right breast. It was coming from the nipple. You know, I rang the hospital and they were like, come in after Christmas. There was two nurses at the end of the phone. They were very kind, but it was like as if you've got to be mistaken. Like blood doesn't just come out of your breast like that. We won't be able to see you till after Christmas, but go to your GP if the thing with this, the bleeding business from the nipple, it made a liar out of me so many times because it would rock up and then disappear at other times and uh, rock up again. But it always seemed to be there in the morning, maybe because I moved in the night as you turn in your sleep. So when I went for my obstetrician appointment in the new year, you know, I brought up the bleeding and she said, oh, is that gone now? And I said, yes. And she said, oh, we don't need to mention it then. So, yeah, so that, that was fine. And I mean, that was the January. We're into 2014 now. Baby is due in April of 2014. And then about March, I was very heavily pregnant. Um, for some reason, I remember it being a Friday and I'm like sitting, like, you know, relaxing. She was at work when a client in a big hurry rushed by her and accidentally slammed her right into a filing cabinet. I remember hitting my breast off one of the cabinets. And do you know what? It sounds probably bad saying this story, but it was the best thing that happened because what happened then is it really erupted this bleeding. And finally, Dee had proof that she was bleeding from her right breast, even though she had to wait until Monday to see a physician and provide her proof. I had to wait till the Monday because I lived away from the city and I wasn't going to like truck up to the hospital and then have to wait. They said, look, there's going to be no doctor here till Monday. And it, that can really, you know, obstetrician isn't into Monday. So I just, luckily the bleeding did subside. Um, but clever me, I kept the clothes as evidence. <laughs> and I like a, walk into my, my GPs on the Monday, like with a bag of bloodied clothes and, um, and I said, look, I've got a problem. But every morning when I wake up, my duvet cover, which I must be bringing into the GPs, is got blood stains on it. Her face dropped. And she said, she called me Deirdre. And uh, she said, Deirdre, you must go to hospital immediately. Um, and this is urgent. And I'm going to make an urgent referral today now I went to up to the hospital I was the only pregnant heavily pregnant woman there that I could see and uh, I could feel sympathetic eyes on me 
I was examined and then I went and had a mammogram and a biopsy and the results came back a couple of days later and it was a papilloma. There's the introduction of Mr. Papilloma to my life, Jackie. <laughs> The trajectory of Dee's years of breast pain and bleeding is difficult for her to explain. I'm coming across as confusing in that, for me, it's a chicken or egg. Were they always there and the pregnancy exacerbated them, or did they come about as a result of pregnancy? So you are still pregnant. What's going on with diagnosis? What, what are doctors telling you? They're not telling me anything at this point. They're just looking a little bit shocked and kind of surprised. And they're wondering, is it breast cancer? So I go then and I go through the, when I'm referred urgently, and the diagnosis or the conclusion of that is papilloma. And the treatment of the papilloma is to excise it. And because I'm heavily pregnant, it cannot happen until 10 weeks postpartum because I'm full of milk. So they do a biopsy mm -hmm. and I assume they tell you very quickly that it's a benign tumor. Yeah. They were like, look, it's benign. What I had a lovely, lovely consultant. I mean, he was with me for the last, I mean, my, my eldest son is seven now. He said, look, they're very straightforward. I wouldn't leave it in there. That's, I remember him saying, I wouldn't leave it in there. We'll get it out. Once they're very, you know, they're benign, they'll get them out, and that'll be the end of it. You know, that usually is the end of it. But obviously, it was not the end of it. It was just the beginning of it. Let, let me ask you, before we talk more about recurring tumor formation, did it affect breastfeeding, and were doctors concerned about that? That's a really lovely question, and thank you for asking it. Um, yeah, I was, I really wanted everything so natural you know you have the plan and the <laughs> sometimes it works out and it didn't and it didn't in my case and uh, I was very well endowed at that stage and I was well the, the nurses said you know you could breastfeed for Ireland and um, but unfortunately I was only allowed to breastfeed from one breast because the second breast was getting ready for surgery and it, there was blood coming from it as well. It was, there was, you know, I got so used to, Jackie, I got so used to waking in the morning and seeing blood on the tips of my duvet. You know, it was just, I got, I got immunized. Is that the word? Or desensitized to it. Um, so I would breastfeed my son and I, I only had seven days, I only got seven days to breastfeed him and I'll tell you why. Um, but those seven days were just absolutely beautiful. And the reason I only got that m moment of time is if, as you probably well know, is the breasts work in tandem, like bicycle, like wheels of a bicycle. So what was happening is the 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 right breast, who was told, eh, eh, you're not allowed breastfeed, was getting bigger and harder, and um, because it wasn't being able to express the milk. I remember a pediatrician coming to see me, in the kindest way. She said, you you need to knock this on the head. Um, this breastfeeding in in a wonderful way. I mean, they're my words, but that was kind of the way. And she was saying it in a loving way um, because she knew it was a loss as well. And I really wanted to do it, and I was really good at it as well. <laughs> um, it took a few tries, but I got I got I got really into it, and um, I was I, you know, and because I loved it, I was willing to per, to pursue with it. 
And uh, it's a wonderful thing to be able to do uh, if it works out for mom and baby. I could rationalize what she was saying. She's like, the breasts need to be clear of milk so for you to prep for surgery. You keep breastfeeding and it's creating more milk. And you, you know, so something has to give. So I had to make that decision. When does it become clear that this is a chronic problem and that you keep having tumor formation? It was summertime. I was happy. I thought this is all over. I've got a new baby. Um, I met up with my pal from, from university. So it was like, you know, this is a lovely time in my life. And I went on to have another child, um, Theo, and he was born in 2016. And I did not. Um, oh, yeah. Sorry. I get confused sometimes because it happened so many times. It was the night I gave birth to Theo that they discovered the second lump. And I had no bleeding throughout that pregnancy. There was no indicators whatsoever. So that came as a big shock. So to answer your question, then, I the summer of being, um, we're into another summer now, um, of being taking care of baby Theo, um, I'm not pregnant. I look down and I see blood on my top. It was summertime. And... Um, I went, oh gosh, oh no, oh God, not again. And I was frightened because I wasn't pregnant. And I was like, oh God, this has to be something sinister now because I could blame the pregnancy hormones all along. You know, I could say, well, it's got to do with the pregnancy, but now I'm not pregnant and it's here again. What is going on? Um, so I knew then that um, it was becoming more chronic, um, coming back again and again. And I went to my um, breast consultant and I knew what he was going to say. I knew, I knew going up there what he was going to say. And uh, I had the third lumpectomy and that's when he said it just after that surgery. He said, look, this seems to be not going away. When you have a tumor in your breast, benign or malignant, a lumpectomy is the least invasive procedure a doctor can perform to rid you of the tumor. Rather than remove the entire breast, a surgeon removes just the tumor, plus some healthy tissue around the tumor, to hopefully ensure that the tumor won't reappear. Dee had several lumpectomies to remove benign tumors, but the surgery didn't end tumor formation. I had a massive dent at this point in my right breast from because they, they were big they weren't little little cute little like you know they were palpable um you know uh, but they were in the breast tissue so sometimes I didn't feel them and um, they were within and uh yeah he said look you're looking at a mastectomy you know he said Look, we did find some atypical cells, um, you know, that were, um, so I was quite worried about that. Um, so, yeah, that, that was the reality I was facing. And um, it was a very hard reality to face, um, hard truth to swallow. But that's, that's when I was told, look, this isn't going away. You're not, you're, you don't have, you know, we're running out of breast tissue and you've got to make a decision. This sounds like something that they were very inexperienced with. They really didn't know how to handle this case. What did, did they have an explanation for you of what they thought was going on and what was causing this? 
they didn't have an explanation. It, it was kind of like this out of the box kind of where, what's this about? Um, that's not to say that they haven't dealt with pa Papilloma before, but I, I do remember saying to my consultant, is there anybody like me on your books? And, you know, this kind of deer in the headlights look came back at me and said, no, there isn't, you know. It was hard. It's hard to make a decision like that, like as a patient, when you've got no one else to talk to who's been on the path like you. Or as you said, maybe has there been someone in my family history or will you find out or can you do a blood test or is there something that we can like I wanted a cause. Like you said, I wanted to I wanted to understand why it was happening as opposed to maybe is, you know, tear, you know, surgery after surgery after surgery. Yeah, just it needs to come out. At this point in her story, Dee has given birth to two children and has had three lumpectomies. It was the third lumpectomy that w I wasn't pregnant when I discovered it, if that makes sense. So the first two I was pregnant, like the first one I, I was, I, I, so we have Sam, my eldest son. I'm pregnant with Sam. After I'm pregnant with Sam, I have a lumpectomy. I'm pregnant with Teal. I didn't know, I didn't sense any papillomas or bleeding or anything like that from the nipple area. After Theo, I have a lumpectomy. And then this, the, there was a, t a year in between, so to speak, or a period then where the bleeding came back and then was the third lumpectomy. You're on your third lumpectomy. I mean, this is really taking pieces of your body mm. time after time after time. Um, so now they're telling you this is going to, it sounds like they're telling you this is probably going to keep recurring. You need to consider mastectomy, mm -hmm. um, which is something that people never think of. I mean, you think a benign tumor, you have a lumpectomy, problem solved. They've taken a look at the tissue, it's not cancerous, and the problem is over. But for you, it wasn't over at all. Mm -hmm. So what did you decide then? Basically, they, obviously, they left it up to you and said... And if you, as you've described, not much breast tissue left. I had a mastectomy in July 2019. Pre to the mastectomy, I remember having some pain and I did present and um, the ultrasound couldn't find anything. They were like, look, it's probably just scar tissue, but given your history, we'll send you for an MRI. And the MRI found five, five little kind of, you know, because I was quite numb in that area as well, Jackie, from all the surgery, I didn't often feel so um, so they did find um, further papilloma. And that, like, it was a hard pill to swallow. But I was like, look, they, this, these guys are just as quicker as they come out. They're growing back, you know. So, yeah, so I, I, I had the mastectomy then. And that, that was not the end of it. Because um, most recently, you had a tumor growing in your uterus as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm laughing because it was just never ending, you know. Um, so to have a um, a massive surgery, like you said, they're like, what this, what, this was benign? And, you know, it was like the, the punishment didn't fit the crime, kind of like. Um, so off I go and have my mastectomy. And a year later, I um, I thought I had a kidney infection. And uh, so I, and then they thought it was an ovarian cyst. And then it was a huge fibroid that had been growing. And again, 
mad for causation, like what is causing all this? And there, my GP said, look, maybe it could do to the estrogen and progesterone from the pregnant earlier pregnancies. This is really funny, Jackie, but I ha- I didn't realize until I was going for surgery that day. I had a uterine artery embolization this summer on the 19th of July, two years to the date that I had my mastectomy. I was like, okay, 19th July is not a good day for me. There isn't very much knowledge about what causes these tumors or even how to treat them or how to stop them other than surgery. That's it, Jackie. Like You summed that up amazingly there because... With the fibroid, like the first thing that was put on the table to me was, I think you should have a hysterectomy. And I was like, like, you know, I've just lost my breast, you know, and now you want to take my womb. Um, Absolutely no way. Like, you know, and it was really upsetting. And then because I felt I'd lost the battle with the papillomas, I thought, am I going to lose the battle with these fibroids? Is it going to be a game of take them out, they go back, take them out, they go back? Well, who knows, you know? Like if we could find out the underlying root cause, then maybe we could change whether it's our lifestyle or stress levels. What is it? The solution or the intervention seems to be surgery and it's quite radical. And yeah, you're right. The word benign is not so benign. And also, you know, surgery, if surgery is is the solution, that's usually because we have no understanding of what's causing it. Um, You know, when you go to cut something, um, that's because we have no idea what's causing it or how to cure it. And that becomes the solution. I take it no one in your family has ever had this happen to them before. My mom is adopted, so I don't have much history there on my mom's side. But even saying that, like, surely there'd be somebody like similar to me. Now, fibroids are very common, so that that isn't that isn't an unusual case. Um, but it's the benign, the tendency that I have to grow these benign tumors, which you very well said that they can impact on organs or in the reproductive system, which was happening with the fibroid, it was pressing on my bowel and my bladder and it was getting bigger and it was distorting the wound. So it it did have to go, but fortunately I didn't lose my wound. The treatment for Dee's recurring tumors was invasive and disrupted her life. One surgery is traumatic enough. She's had to have several. When people hear the word benign, Jackie, they assume, oh, she, you're fine, or as we'd say in Ireland, Ashy or grand, right? And it's actually not a helpful word because it stops, I think, you, one, accessing maybe emotional support or extra allied support. It's, it's unfair. It is, and it's so interesting because there really is, I mean, as, as hard as it is to have a cancer diagnosis, there is a certain bit of institutional support and societal understanding, but when it comes to benign tumors, you know, people just shrug and say, problem solved. It's a benign tumor, nothing to worry about, and yet it can really be debilitating and really affect your life. Why am I, why, why do I have to go for this such big in-your-face surgery if, if you're telling me it's not cancer and it is benign, you know? So it doesn't make sense. Um, so maybe we need, we as a society or a medical, 
where I'll need to find out more about about these benign <laughs> creatures that invade us. Do they have a prognosis? What have they have they been able to tell you in any way what to expect, how they'll approach this in the future? What what do they tell you? I don't know how it is in the states, but with because I have a problem with my breast, I go to the breast consultant, and I have an issue with my uterus, so I go to to Mr. Fibroid doctor. But I'd love if they sat down and spoke to each other about me and try to figure out what's going on with Georgia. So it's compartmentalized. The prognosis, if I deal with the breast side of things, is um, I had, I think I'd annual mammogram. I had a kind of mammograms maybe every year or every two years. Um, I, I haven't had one this year. And um, because it was, you know, I was examined. I'm examined every year. I have an annual checkup. So the prognosis is I don't I, they don't know. They haven't informed me. It's just kind of regular checks. It's so interesting to what you just described, the compartmentalized medical care. When you go to specialists, they're focused on one part of your body and no one talks to anyone else. And yet it seems so clear from your description that this is a condition. We do have similar problems in the United States because we have so much subspecialization, and yet we're trying to overcome that. We we do talk about how teamwork is important, but in reality, um, it doesn't happen as much as it should. There aren't doctors don't talk to each other enough. And your case is a very good example of how that is not the best for the patient. That absolutely, your doctors should be talking to each other and comparing notes. Mm. Absolutely. You know, and I hope I, I hope from talking like this, it's that, that learnings come from it for the next Deirdre or the next Jackie or the next Adam or whoever it may be, you know, so that there is going to be a change in kind of having a systemic kind of overview or holistic overview to kind of whole patient care. story contains several lessons. Physicians too often dismiss women's complaints of something being not quite right, especially when the symptom doesn't correspond to what a doctor knows to be customary. In Dee's case, women in their 20s aren't supposed to have tumors. Listening carefully to the patient's concerns and taking the concerns seriously often leads directly to a diagnosis. If a physician rebuffs a patient, the patient should be persistent. Patients know their bodies better than doctors do. If necessary, see another doctor. Dee's story also reminds us that medicine is more an art than a science. And medicine doesn't always have an answer. There's a good deal about the human body that science and medicine still don't understand. Lifespan is a production of WOUB Public Media. I'm Jackie Wolf, professor of social medicine at Ohio University and the executive producer and host of Lifespan. Adam Rich is our producer, audio engineer, and audio editor. Mm-hmm.